Wonderful. Let's, let's have another try at that. <laughs> okay. So this morning, picture with me. You've heard about this strange man who's preaching in the wilderness. Everyone's talking about him. The women getting their water at the well are asking questions of Hannah, who's been there to hear him. What's he like? What did you say he was wearing? You got the uh, recorder on that? Yeah. What did you say? What did he say? Why would anyone want to go all the way out there to hear such a strange character? Or the men gathered at the village gate, exchanging news with passing travellers. Who is this guy? Did you see him? What did he say? What gives him the right to preach that kind of thing? And you go home thinking about what you've heard. Something's stirring in you. You're intrigued. Everywhere you go, people are talking about this man. You decide that next week when you travel, you'll go via the lower road to see for yourself what all this fuss is about. Could this boat possibly be the promised deliverer? The day comes and you take the road north toward Jericho. The road seems quite busy today with groups of people, some hurrying, some strolling, but all heading in the same direction. There's an air of expectancy and it's clear where most of them are headed. You follow the road and leave the main thoroughfare and follow a smaller dusty track winding among shrubby trees toward the river. There's quite a large crowd gathered along the bank of the river and you can't quite see the object of their attention. But you can hear his clear voice rising above the murmuring and general chatter of the crowd. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? Someone calls from the crowd. Anyone who has two shirts should share them with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. You push through the crowd a bit further and can see this curious figure standing in the river. Long hair and a rough tunic. Several other people are wading out of the water. What on earth? They're dripping wet like they've been swimming. A group of tax collectors on the bank ask him, Teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he tells them. That certainly sounds great. The mongrel's always cheating you. It's bad enough having to pay taxes to Rome without this. Your fellow countrymen adding exorbitant amounts for themselves. Then some soldiers ask him, what should we do? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. You're beginning to like this guy. Although some of that stuff about the axe being ready to cut down the trees sounds weird, like some prophet from the past. Some of the tax collectors start wading out into the water and John asks them if they're going to change their ways. They affirm that they will and then they allow him to dunk them in the river. 
Wow, who is this man that can touch a tax collector's heart? We are, of course, talking about John the Baptist, or John, son of Zechariah, or later known as John the Forerunner. So John was a child of promise. John, son of Zechariah. His birth was announced, promised, by no less than the angel Gabriel, who announced to Mary that she was going to have, give birth to Jesus. You probably know the story. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children because they were too old and to have any and they still hadn't had any children. And one day, Zach, who was a priest, was in the temple burning incense and the angel Gabriel appears alongside the altar, frightening the life out of him. He says they will have a son and they have to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Zach isn't sure he's hearing right and foolishly expresses his doubts to the angel. Gabriel says, well, just to help you believe, you won't be able to speak until the baby's born. When it comes time for the baby to be born, everyone's expecting him to be named after his father. But Zechariah writes a message. His name is John. At that point, he's able to speak again. Zechariah means God remembers. But the name that God gave John means God is gracious, which was a prophetic name because that was his message, that Jesus would come. Jesus was coming to bring grace, to bring that forgiveness that we know Jesus gives us. And we too are children of promise. If we can have that, that's it. <laughs> that's most of us when we were little. <laughs> you may or may not have... Uh, known about God at that point but he made you he made you with a special purpose just like he did for John and listen to what the Bible says about you even before he made the world God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes now of course we have to accept Jesus death for us to be holy and without fault. We can't do it on our own. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure to make you his child. But we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He had a plan for you. God prepared those works in advance for you to do. Now, number six. John was different. I imagine the young John was probably a bit of a loner. He was different to the other kids with uh, the way that he, his birth had been predicted. And he possibly went exploring into the wilderness as a young teenager. If we can have the next 
the next one up. After that. No, not that one. Go back. <laughs> the map. The one before the map. That's it. That's the hill country of Judea where John was born. Tradition is that John was born in a little town in that valley there. And uh, the hills of Judea go down from Jerusalem up the top and go lower and along the, the range of uh, mountains there or hills. And then if we go onto the map on the next one, you can see the hill country of Judah and the wilderness of Judah and right next to each other. So he would have been able to go from his town where he lived down into the wilderness quite readily. And he probably did it as a young teenager, wandered around there, got to know the place a bit. It wasn't too far from his childhood home to the wilderness. And uh, the next thing we hear about John is the, that he wore camel's hair. Now, I've always thought camel's hair would be really rough because that kind of what people said he was, he was wearing rough clothing. But this is a camel hair hat which Daryl's sister made for him. Daryl's sister used to, uh, with her husband, have the camels down on Victor Harbour Beach that you may or may not be familiar with. And uh, she harvested some wool off the camel and spun it and made a hat for him. So you're welcome to feel that later and feel just what camel's hair does feel like. <laughs> it's not too bad. Now the next thing was that he ate locusts. We can have our next picture up. <laughs> I thought, I used to think as a, a young person that that must have been a mistake in the in the uh, the Bible that he could eat locusts. It sounded disgusting. And when I went to Cambodia, there they were, people with these dishes of fried locusts and grasshoppers and all sorts of things, spiders. And, and I thought, ooh, wow, he really did eat locusts. And you know that it says in Leviticus. You must not eat winged insects that walk along the ground. They're detestable to you. You may, however, eat winged insects that walk along the ground and have jointed legs so they can jump. The insects you're permitted to eat include all kinds of locusts, bald locusts, crickets and grasshoppers. <laughs> and I was really intrigued that it was... But uh, <laughs> uh, the Bible even says... You can eat locusts, because of course John wouldn't have done it if it wasn't uh, kosher. So uh, John was different. Was it okay for John to be different? What did God expect of him? Did he expect him to be different? Are you different? We should be different from the world around us. Not quite like John, with locusts and wild honey and camel's hair. Although camel's hair is not too bad. Uh, but uh, 
<laughs> the wild honey would be alright, probably too. Although there probably a bit of wax in it. I prefer my honey nicely clean. <laughs> um, what does God expect of you? He expects us to be different to the world around us and he expects us to be different from each other. He made us all individual and unique. Just, and it's okay to be you. Um, the other day we were talking about what I would tell my younger self if I had the opportunity. And uh, I was thinking about it and thought I would tell myself to be me and to be myself and not to feel the pressure to be other, other than that. When I was young, um, I was a Baptist and my personality fitted quite nicely in the Baptist church. And then I became a Pentecostal and uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit and there was a lot of pressure, not necessarily from other people, but that I felt that I was supposed to suddenly become a whole different person. Um, I think Daryl may have even expected that being baptised in the Holy Spirit would totally transform my personality to more extrovert. But um, you know the story of the tortoise and the hare? Well, I'm a tortoise. I'm a slow and steady. I am no good at where it re requires quick and efficient. <laughs> Does not work for me. Um, my first job after I left school, I tried out in a deli and they told me after a week, we don't think you're suitable for this job. Which I was quite happy about really because I was very out of my depth, trying to be quick and efficient. I'm a tortoise and uh, the first job we had, uh, uh, then I went nursing and I really enjoyed the uh, academic side of it but I'm sure the sisters on the ward did not appreciate my tortoise likeness. <laughs> I was too slow and so uh, after we were married I worked in an office and, and that was much more my style. So, are you different? Are you okay being different? Next, John had a passion for God. John was passionate for God. His parents were both from priestly family lines. Priests lived, lived in their own homes in the villages in those days and they were required to work at the temple for all the major festivals and about twice a year they were rostered on for an additional week. Their duties involved offering the daily holiday temple sacrifices and administering the priestly blessing to the people. The change between shifts took place on Sabbath at midday with the outgoing shift performing the morning sacrifices and the incoming shift doing the afternoon sacrifices. So that's what it was like to be a priest in the uh, days of Jesus. That's what John's father did and that's how he came to be in the temple um, burning incense and hearing from the angel. But as the son of a godly priest, John would have been trained in the Old Testament and learned much of it by heart. 
uh, especially with the word that had been given over him at his birth, that he would uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He would bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And John obviously grew into a man who was passionate to honour God. He was out there in the desert preaching. He was into prayer and fasting. He spent time alone with God. He had a special call on his life to live like this. Do you have a passion for God? Why are people so passionate that they're willing to die for Jesus? Napoleon Bonaparte, in an exile toward the end of his life, said, My army has forgotten me while living. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what we did, we rest the but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. That's the empire of love, the empire that Jesus founded. How does your passion for God affect you? It depends a bit how you're made, whether you're a tortoise or a hare, <laughs> as to how your passion might outwork in your life. When Dwight Moody was in London during one of his famous evangelistic tours, several British clergymen visited him. They wanted to know how and why this poorly educated American was so effective in winning throngs of people to Christ. Moody took the three men to the window of his hotel room and asked each in turn what he saw. One by one, the men described the people in the park below. Then Moody looked out the window with tears rolling down his cheeks. What do you see, Mr. Moody, they, one of the men asked. I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find a saviour. Obviously, D.L. Moody saw people differently than the average observer does. And because he saw eternal souls where others saw only people strolling in a park, Moody approached life with a different agenda. Are you a John or a Moody? How does your passion for God play out in your life? John learned to listen to the Holy Spirit. God sent a man named John to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John's message, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near, the true light is coming. And his message wasn't really, you're a sinner, you must repent. It was, the king is coming real soon, get ready, repent, turn to God, get your heart right. He was preparing the way for Jesus. 
In the ancient world, when a king was going on a journey, he would send a team of people out ahead to smooth out the road. He, they'd uh, widen the, the tracks, they'd clear things away. You know, if you were just driving, riding on, the, on a donkey, you could go round the boulder. But if you're the king and you've got a great entourage with you, you need the boulder out of the way. You need the holes filled in. And that was the picture that John was using and that Isaiah was using when he prophesied about John. He will prepare the way for the Lord. The first word of the gospel is repent. It's what Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Was part of the first word in, in uh, Peter's message when he was first baptized in the Holy Spirit and he got up and preached, it was repent. Paul's message right through the book of Acts starts with repent. And it's a serious uh, thing that often gets overlooked these days when we preach the gospel, when we share the gospel with other people, is that God expects us to acknowledge that we aren't doing it right. He expects us to daily acknowledge when we mess up, to repent. And to repent also means to turn around. John listened to the Holy Spirit. Listen to John's prophetic declaration about Jesus. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Here's the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I didn't recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And he could only have said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about a guy who was actually his mother's cousin or a second cousin or whatever they were. How do you say the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world about another guy unless you're inspired by the Holy Spirit? Are you learning to hear the Holy Spirit's voice? It takes practice. So often I forget to ask and forget to listen. It's a little story that uh, is just so good. On Before refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, and a tightly fitted door. In the winter, when the streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut, hauled to the ice houses, and covered with sawdust. Often the ice would last well into the summer. One man lost a valuable watch while working in an ice house. He searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but he didn't find it. His fellow workers also looked, but their efforts too proved futile. A small boy who heard about the fruitless search slipped into the ice house during the noon hour and soon emerged with the watch. Amazed, the men asked how he found it. I closed the door, the boy replied lay down in the sawdust and kept very still. Soon I heard the watch ticking and I was able to find it. Often the question is not whether God is speaking but whether we're still enough and quiet enough to hear.
John had doubts when things went wrong. Herod sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favour to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless, for Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. So we've got John there in prison, and uh, a bit like us, I guess, he was feeling discouraged and thinking, hey, did I get all this wrong? What am I doing? How did I end up here? He was, uh, he's often compared to Elijah. Elijah, in the Old Testament, spoke out against Ahab and Jezebel and the wicked things they did, who were the king at that time, king and queen. And John spoke out against Herod and Herodias, the king at that, in his day. Like Elijah, he got discouraged and began to doubt that he'd heard correctly. John would have been very familiar with all the prophecies about the coming Messiah. He, like many others of his day, may have been expecting a Messiah who would free them from the Roman oppression. This may have been part of his uncertainty when he sent his disciples to check it out. Because Jesus wasn't look like he was looking like he was going to raise up a, a, uh, an army to fight the Romans. Had he made a mistake? Was Jesus really the promised Messiah? John sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus to clarify things. At that very time when they came, it says in Luke 7, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses and evil spirits and restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, Go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear and the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So Jesus didn't rebuke his doubts. He reminded John of what he would have known from the word. From Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You do. John would have known that was a messianic prophecy and he would have known that that's what Isaiah was saying Jesus would do. And when Jesus did these things and said, see, all the things I'm doing would have triggered John's brain to, yes, I didn't get it right. He is the Messiah. So what do you do when things go wrong? Jesus reminded John what the word says. And what we believe makes a difference. A man, Moody tells us in one of his stories, a man said to me some time ago, Moody, the doctrine you preach is most absurd. You preach that men have only to believe to change the whole course of their life. A man will not change his course by simply believing. I said, 
I think I can make you believe that in less than two minutes. No, you can't. He said, I'll never believe it. I said, let's make sure we understand each other. You say a man is not affected by what he believes. That it will not change the course of his actions. I do. Suppose, I said, a man should put his head in at that door and say the house was on fire. What would you do? You'd get out by the window if you believed it, wouldn't you? Oh, he replied, I didn't think of that. <laughs> so what we believe that can change our actions. Uh, during a debate with the Oxford atheistic philosopher Jonathan Glover, well-known social critic, <clears throat> asked this question. If you, Professor Glover, were stand stranded at midnight in the desert Los Angeles street, and as you hesitantly stepped out of your car, were to hear the weight of pounding footsteps behind you, and you saw ten burly young men who had just stepped out of a dwelling coming toward you, would it or would it not make a difference to you to know they were coming from a Bible study? <laughs> and uh, I think it's very true that what we believe can change our actions. If you believe God is good and will care for you, you can trust him when things look tight. You don't have to stress about it. Do we believe what God says or what our circumstances or our feelings tell us? I really like that song that Wendy had this morning about the voice of truth. I will believe the voice of truth. I will believe what the word of God says. My conclusion today is God chose you and had a plan for you. A plan for you to be different. A plan for you to be passionate. A plan to hear and obey his voice. And he has given you promises in his word to hang on to when things get difficult. Lord, we do thank you that you chose us. We thank you that you have a plan for us. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word to hang on to. Lord, help us today to remember when things get difficult, to hang on to you, to hang on to your word and the promises in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.